I would like our theme for this whole service to be an Italian who was saved by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and his name is Cornelius. As we sing, I want you to think about how Cornelius would have sang after he met Peter and sang his first hymn and song about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to honor Cornelius because Cornelius was just a man as we are, a sinner saved by grace. But I want you to so connect with Acts 10 that you will put yourself in his situation as to how thankful he would have been after having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing what he could do to serve Jesus Christ. Because we are in his situation. We are Gentiles and we have been saved to be the people of God and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn for an opening passage of scripture just to introduce this to our minds to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Now there are three places in the Bible where Cornelius is referenced directly. Acts 10 which is the whole story of his conversion, all 48 verses. Then Acts 11, where Peter was called to question in Jerusalem for what he had just done with some Gentiles. And then Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, when Peter once again reminded all the apostles and elders that he was the one God had chosen to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's those verses I want to read to you. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 6. The situation here is that some converted Pharisees were teaching that you had to keep the law of Moses in addition to trusting Jesus Christ for any hope of eternal life. And so there was a great council drawn together in Jerusalem to settle the issue. Did the Gentile converts need to keep any of the law of Moses or was it gone? And they were saved entirely by grace. This is the situation beginning at verse 6. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, Mm -hmm. and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, And will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, 
that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Amen. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Amen and amen. Peter got up and recounted him first preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household and their conversion. Paul and Barnabas got up and added some details of what they had done. But then James got up and gave the summary. What happened with Peter in Acts chapter 10 was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that the true tabernacle of David, the true Israel of God, the true Jews are the believers in Jesus Christ of both Jews and Gentiles. And God has chosen to make again the kingdom of God, not under David this time, but under David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are full members and citizens of it. Praise be to his name. Amen. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. This had always been his intent. This was no change because the Jews didn't treat Jesus correctly. This had been his plan from the very beginning that he would build again the kingdom of God in the earth and include Gentiles in it. And we are in that number. May the Lord be praised this day. We are brothers to Cornelius. He's an Italian. We may be Americans. But we're all brought into the household of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can worship together that way this day. As we sing, I hope you'll think of Cornelius singing. And what joy would have brought to his heart to have sung hymns of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our introduction from Acts 15. I want us to think about Cornelius. We want to address the issue of when was Cornelius saved. You know, and the problem is that men don't want to divide the word of truth anymore. Amen. They want to be very simplistic, and the Bible isn't written simplistically. The Bible's written for those that will study it. And Cornelius was saved in a couple of different senses, and we want to see those different senses. He was saved long before he ever heard the name Peter in some ways. But then he needed Peter in other ways to show him the truth of the gospel so that his mind could have understanding and his heart could have peace and assurance about what Christ had done for him. It's a big difference. We want to keep that difference straight as we study our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen. Emmanuel being God with us. There is no need of a sun there, the Bible tells us, because the Lamb is the light thereof. Amen. Amen. The Bible tells us that he dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. Yes. Glorious. Amen. Psalm 53 is going to continue our theme of this morning, because if it were not for the grace of God... Cornelius would have been left in the first three verses of this psalm. And were it not for the grace of God, all of us would be left in the first three verses of this psalm. So let's all rise together and read a description of natural man's depravity. Psalm 53 in unison. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men 
to see if there were any that did understand and that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Amen and amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from ourselves. Amen. amen. Psalm 53 is important enough that it has a twin in the Bible, and it's Psalm 14. Right. There are a couple of words that differ, but for the most part, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are twin psalms. Right. And the first three verses are very close to each other because they describe our condition by nature. Being brought into human existence, being conceived and born a human, you fall into verses 1 and 3. The Apostle Paul takes these verses in verses 1 and 3 from these two Psalms and quotes them in Romans chapter 3 where he indicts the whole human race as being under the condemnation of God. Right. Let's look at those words just again for a moment. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. To say there is no God means that you are a fool. Right. Because not only from the creation has he declared himself to be God, but from his works toward his people in the Old Testament and from his declaration of the whole Bible, he is God. And to say there isn't a God is to be a fool. True. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. What does God say about men? Corrupt are they. They are corrupt. They have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. Now if there is none that doeth good, how many do good? None. None. Because there is none that doeth good. Now there are those that say God looked down from heaven through all the ages of time. And he saw who loved him, who sought him, who wanted to be saved, and so he chose them to be saved. There are people that believe that. They call it conditional election. That God looked down in his foreknowledge, and he saw who would believe on him, who was seeking after him, and he saved them. I do believe part of that. I believe that God looked down from heaven. Amen. But I think they are all human lovers of themselves right. rather than lovers of God because they have rejected the truth of the Bible. Because yeah. the Bible tells us exactly what God found when he looked down in his foreknowledge upon men. And it's in verse 2. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men. This is important. This ought to be exciting. What did he find when he looked down? He looked down to see. If there were any that did understand, that did seek God. That's what he looked for. And what's the answer? 
Every one of them has gone back. Like our father Adam and our mother Eve, we have all gone back from his commandments and turned ourselves unto our own way, and none of us had any interest in him at all. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. The Apostle Paul, when he quotes this, he says, There is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3.11 We need this chapter to understand Cornelius. That's why we're here in Psalm 53. Because if we lay the foundation of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, when we start reading Acts 10, we will realize God has already done something very significant to this man and his household. Because by nature... When God looked down, there wasn't a single one. If God had left us to our own heart's desire, there wouldn't be a single person saved. If eternal life depends upon men making a choice for God, no one would be saved. Because this is the condition we're in. God must save us by his will. And that is what the Bible teaches. Because look at the condition of man. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And so the psalmist goes on to say in verse 4, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Are they totally dense? Are men totally stupid? And the point here in the last few verses is, these enemies of God were persecuting the, per- the people of God, Israel. Right. Why didn't they recognize that there was a God in heaven that was going to come and defend his people? Do they have no knowledge at all? How can a man be so blind as to ignore the creator God and all the things he's done for his people? It's a rhetorical question. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge at all? Are they totally stupid? Yes. Right. Who was the smartest man in Egypt by education and training? Pharaoh. God has beat him nine times in the land of Egypt. Every time Moses said something was going to happen, it happened. Every time. When his chariot stood on the edge of the Red Sea and his horse was shying away from entering down into that water that was stacked up thousands of feet on each side, did the man have a mind at all? His horse knew that he shouldn't go in there. What did Pharaoh do? Drove his chariot down into that Red Sea. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? That is natural man left to himself. That is natural man with the grace of God withdrawn from his life. He isn't even as smart as the horse. True. He went right on down into the Red Sea, even though he had already had nine object lessons, that this God of Israel is not one to be messed with. And he goes on down to the Red Sea. That is how depraved humanity is. And God gave us Pharaoh as an example. He just lifted Pharaoh higher than the rest of us to prove that no matter how high he lifts us, it just results in pride against the Most High. And then he crushed Pharaoh. He took the wheels off that chariot in the middle of the Red Sea so that he had a little while to think about the fact that he had just met the Lord. He had started out his relationship with Moses by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He met the Lord And it was too late to obey him. He was drowned in the Red Sea. And this is what the Bible wants us to know about the Most High. 
Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? No, they have no knowledge. If God does not open a man's heart and open his mind, open his ears and open his eyes, he will not love, he will not understand, he will not hear, nor will he see anything. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yet most of the religious world wants to present the kingdom of God to men in order for them to be born again. Jesus said it the opposite way. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He must be born again first to have life in the heart, understanding in the mind, ears and eyes to see and to hear before you can present the kingdom of God to him. That is the message of the whole New Testament. And we will encounter that when we open Acts 10 because we're going to find Cornelius the most eager hearer you can imagine because God had already regenerated him and given him a new heart and given him seeing eyes and given him hearing ears and given him an understanding mind. May the Lord bless us to see it clearly this day. It goes on to describe in verses 4 and 5 how foolish wicked men are because when God arises to defend his people, he scatters them because he despises them. Now that isn't popular theology to say that God despises anyone today. But if you read the Bible, it says in the last part of verse 5, because God hath despised them. If it wasn't for the grace of God, he would despise our entire race. Every single one of us. We deserve to have God despise us. We earn the wages of sin, which is eternal death. But he's gracious. Amen. You know, there's a whole race that was given no chance at all, no salvation at all. And it's a race higher than ours. And it's the devil and the fallen angels. He despised them and he has reserved them in chains to everlasting destruction. He's merciful. But look at the God that we're dealing with. If there wasn't grace to be found in him, there would be no hope for any at all. Because of the condition we're in in verses 1 through 3. And because he despises the workers of iniquity. As it tells us in other places. But also right here in verse 5. The psalmist finishes by saying. Oh the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Israel had fallen into captivity. We don't know the particular details. The point is. These people that have taken us captive. Their character is well known. Their character is the same as our own. But God's had mercy on us. And oh, that God had delivered us, and he will deliver us, and will rejoice when he does deliver us out of captivity. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. God has delivered us out of the captivity of sin, and out of the palace of the strong man, and has saved us by his grace, just like he did Cornelius. And may we rejoice this day at the great deliverance that God has wrought for us. Let us sing Psalm 53. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Let's open our Bibles with joy and eagerness to see what the Word of God has to say to us that we might learn, that we might be reminded of the truth of our salvation. For here we have the most extensive testimony of how a man is saved in the whole Bible. And that's the testimony of Cornelius. 48 verses in chapter 10. The first 18 verses in chapter 11 and a number of verses in chapter 15. 
We have already introduced ourselves to this great subject by reading Psalm 53, which has a twin in Psalm 14, in which we saw how depraved and wicked men are by nature. And so as we begin reading in Acts chapter 10, we want to remember that foundation we've already laid. I want to read to you the first four verses. Acts chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. The blessed God of heaven heard and accepted and approved the almsgiving and the praying of this man Cornelius long before he even knew there was a man named Peter. And so we're going to explore this man's testimony. But before we do that, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to come back to Acts 10, and you can hold your hand there, but let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 to lay again from the New Testament the foundation that we need to rightly understand how and when Cornelius was saved. It is a charge of the Apostle Paul to New Testament ministers that they rightly divide the word of truth. True, right. Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible is written in such a way that if you do not approach it humbly and with great study and making divisions in it, you will end up confused by it because it was written to confuse men. Absolutely. Jesus spoke in parables not to reveal the truth to common men, but to hide the truth from educated men. The the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak in parables all the time? Don't you know that they do not understand? And Jesus said, I don't want them to understand. Matthew 13, because they seeing, they have eyes, but they don't see anything spiritually. They have ears, but they don't hear anything spiritually. They have hearts, but they don't understand anything spiritually. Therefore, I speak to them in parables that they seeing may see not, that they hearing may hear not, and they may not understand that I might have to convert them. Now, nobody wants to preach that message today because it's unpopular. But I will preach it because it's the truth. Amen. Men are confused about how Cornelius was saved. Cornelius didn't decide to get saved. Right. God decided to save Cornelius. And we're going to see that because what in the world changed Cornelius before Peter got to him? Let's remind ourselves from the New Testament 
what kind of condition we're in by birth. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first three verses. <laughs> Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Amen. Three verses telling us that by nature we were just like the children of wrath that will end up in hell. By nature we obeyed the devil willingly. By nature, all we could think about was fulfilling our lusts. By nature, we were dead in trespasses and sins. It is so tiring to keep opposing men in this generation that tell dead sinners that they need to do something to get life. You can't tell a dead man anything he can do to get life. Right. You are too late. Right. There's only one person that can do something for a dead man. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. because he can say this word and say it powerfully. <laughs> Live. Amen. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Right. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. Right. He must give life, because we are dead by nature. Walking according to the course of this world, we're going right along with everyone else, right down the, the broad way that leads to destruction. And we're willing subjects of the devil because it said that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince, the one that's over all the devils that are in the air, the atmosphere of this room and the atmosphere of this earth. They're confined to that atmosphere. And he's the prince of them all. He is the prince of the devils. The devil, we willingly walked after him because we were his captives. We sold ourselves to him in the Garden of Eden when he came along and said... God, yea, hath God said, God's trying to keep you from being a God. If you'll eat of that fruit, you'll not die. You'll become like gods. And we sold our souls to the devil in the Garden of Eden. And that's our condition. That's been the condition of all men that have been born ever since, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who had no earthly father. Let's come in our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, so that we can be reminded of how we are delivered from that horrible state of death. And that horrible state of bondage to the devil, to the prince of the power of the air. How are we delivered? Luke chapter 11. And I bring you good tidings this morning. Amen. Just think if all that you knew was the Old Testament, you'd read Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 a few too many times. Because those Psalms leave you condemned. I bring you glad tidings. Look at what this passage has to tell us. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. Jesus was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. Now, the devil wasn't dumb. The, the dumb here is not a lack of intelligence. The dumbness here is the inability to speak. And the devil could speak, but it was a devil of a dumb spirit that caused the man that he was possessing to be dumb. The man could not speak. Many physical infirmities are caused by the devil. You read about it in the Bible. 
as soon as Jesus would cast the devil out, the man would be whole. Yes, right. Because that's the, the devil has that kind of power when the Lord allows him to affect a man that way. Let's come back to verse 14. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Go back and look at that verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. A strong man that has weapons can defend his palace and keep all of his possessions safe from anyone else. Who is the strong man in verse 21? The prince of the power of the air, the devil of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The strong man. That strong man had all of us. He had his weapons. He had God's laws, the, the claim of God's laws against us. He kept us all. We could not deliver ourselves. We were locked up in the palace of the devil, walking according to the course of the prince of the power of the air. But now I bring you glad tidings this morning, brethren. Cornelius was not lost along with the rest of the Italians and the Romans. Cornelius did not waste his life in ancestor worship or worshiping the Caesars of Rome. Cornelius was delivered from the power of the devil. Cornelius, as a Roman soldier, would have been introduced to all sorts of paganism in the Roman Empire. But Cornelius was delivered, and we've been delivered, and how have we been delivered? Did Cornelius decide that he was going to attack the front door and leave the palace of the devil? No, he didn't, because he loved being there. He was walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Right. The next verse tells us, verse 22, But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, we've got two men. One man is the devil in a palace where he is holding the human race in captivity. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Amen. What are his spoils? They were you and me. The spoils of what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. We were bound in the palace of the devil. But the stronger one came, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who destroyed and defeated the devil at the cross of Calvary and has delivered us out of the possession of the devil. Praise be to his glorious name. Amen. Now let's go to Acts 10. Now we're ready to read about this man who enlisted in the Roman armies. 
and was transported across the Mediterranean Sea from the nation of Italy to be an occupying force in the land of Palestine with a century under his command, 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. As we're going to read in this chapter, he had soldiers that waited on him continually. He was a man of lower rank. A centurion was not a Caesar, and he wasn't the head of a legion, but he did have a 100 soldiers reporting to him, or thereabouts, and men that waited on him continually. And there he is, and he has his household, he has kinsmen with him, and he has near friends, and he's in the city of Caesarea, Palestine, not Caesarea Philippi on the Mediterranean coast, but one closer to Judea. And here we meet him, a certain man called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. Whether just his century were all Italians, or whether he was part of a larger group of soldiers that were all from Italy, he was an Italian among Italians. And the Lord saved him out of the ignorance and darkness of that nation Right. in the, in the way that we're just about to read. He was a devout man. We read in verse chapter in verse 2. Now let's remember, as we start down through the description, remember what we read in Psalm 53. In Psalm 53, we read that they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. When God looked down from heaven, he didn't see a single man seeking him. Right. He didn't see a single man with understanding. We had all gone out of the way. We had all turned backward. And as Ephesians 2 confirmed that, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. Happy serving the devil. Happy following the, ra- the vessels of wrath to everlasting destruction. As Luke 11 described it, bound up in the palace of the devil himself. Unable and unwilling to deliver ourselves. Now we read about this man named Cornelius. It says he was devout. Now we can't prove a whole lot from the word devout. We can after we read the chapter. But just by the word devout doesn't prove enough because there are devout pagans described in the book of Acts in a couple of places. So when we read the word devout without any statements, or without, if we just look at the word devout by itself, it doesn't prove anything by itself. But if we keep on reading, we find out that the word devout here is a word that the Holy Ghost is using to describe Cornelius. Right. And the description is going to tell us that he was truly a sincere devout man in the true worship of God as far as he understood. Right. A devout man and one that feared God with all his house. Cornelius feared God with all his house. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the great trait of the righteous are that they fear God. Yes. Righteous men and saints fear God. Do we Have we learned a verse that sounds like this? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Solomon at the end of his life and all that he had learned said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Amen. Why was Cornelius doing that already? Turn, holding your hand, always holding your hand at Acts 10. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. There are many, many verses that could be raised. I'm only going to give you a couple, a small sampling of them. And there will be many more in a very extensive outline that we will have on the internet in the next couple of days. We will have, by the grace of God only, the magnum opus 
about Cornelius on the website in the next couple of days. I am sick of reading Church of Christ and other documents about Cornelius because they don't have a clue when he was saved. Now, just for a chase a rabbit for 30 seconds, when does the Church of Christ think that Cornelius was saved? When he was baptized. When he was baptized, yes. When he was baptized. Verse 48, they don't get Cornelius saved until they get to verse 48. They're so far off the truth, they're not even, wor- they're not even worth thinking about. Right. They're so pitiful. We'll have an answer for them on the internet, the Lord willing, in just a couple of days. Amen. But let's come over to Romans chapter 3. And what does the Bible have to say about men before they are born again or before they're saved, before they have eternal life? Beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul is condemning the human race, Jews and Gentiles, in verses 9 down through 18. See, in verse 9 he says, Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. And then he quotes from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. In verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's a quote from the psalm we read. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. What do those words mean? There is none that seeketh after God. Do you think you were seeking after God before you were born again? You are wrong. We would only seek after God after he's given us a new heart that loves God, that seeks him, that desires him, that wants him. God must make that first change. We can't make it. We can't be walking according to the prince of the power of the air and then say, you know, I don't like following the devil anymore. I'm going to start following the Lord. I'm going to change my life. No one's ever done that. They might try to change their life with Dale Carnegie. They might try to change their life with AA, but they're never going to change their life by getting born again at their choice. Right. right. When a man choose, when a man changes and all of a sudden he doesn't want his old way of life, but he wants a new way of life, it's because God put something inside him to make him willing to do that. Right. Verses that come to mind are like this in Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be made willing in the day of my power. Amen. When you're willing to do something toward God, it's God's power that changed you. Right. Here we are reading the condemnation of the human race, and we come down to verse 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There it is. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, when we come back to Acts 10, and it says that Cornelius feared God with all his house. And it's not Luke's opinion. It's not Peter's opinion. It's not my opinion that he feared God with all his house. It's the Holy Spirit's declaration about him. Because this is Holy Spirit narrative that we're reading. We've got a problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does the Bible say about the wicked? The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Psalm 10.4. That's the character that we were of before God saved us. But now we're reading about Cornelius that he feared God and he feared him with his whole house. What made the difference? The Lord did. The Lord Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ who spoiled the power of the devil and said, live to Cornelius. We don't know if Jesus Christ said that to Cornelius when he was in Caesarea or on the ships coming across the Mediterranean or when he was in boot camp in Italy. We do not know when. You, never, you may never know when Jesus Christ spoke life into your soul. Right. 
Right. He spoke life into the soul of John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb. Now, how much did John the Baptist have to do with that? Was John twirling around inside there and said, I don't want to follow the devil anymore. I want Jesus to come into my life. No, John the Baptist didn't do that. Jesus said, live as the son of God. And John the Baptist was leaping for joy in his mother's womb. What made John the Baptist so different from the character of natural men that we're reading about? What made that difference? The Lord made the difference. Amen. Salvation is of the Lord. Right. We only love him because he first loved us. Amen. Why do we want to get that order reversed? Men want to be their own savior, but the Lord has to save us. Amen. And so we have Cornelius here. He's a wonderful example. This man who would, been, who would have been raised with paganism all around him in the nation of the in the nation of Italy and in the empire of the Romans, we find him here in Caesarea, fearing God with all his house because God had already regenerated him. He was already born again. Right. He had already been quickened from a state of death in trespasses and sins. Otherwise, he wouldn't fear God. We, we don't need to read any further to know without a doubt that Cornelius was already saved in the sense of being born again. Because we're to rightly divide the word of truth. There's a whole lot more to salvation than just being born again. He was already born again. When we find him in Acts chapter 10, he'd never met Peter. He'd never been to a church service, and he had certainly never heard an invitation. The apostles didn't give any, and he wasn't anywhere near one. God had changed his heart all by himself. It could have been the battlefield. It could have been when he was in bed. Jesus Christ said, live. And I present to you a glorious Savior this morning. Amen. Not a begging failure that's never been able to accomplish anything that he set out to do, but one who saved every single one that God gave him to save. And Cornelius and his household was one batch of those. And here we are, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. This man feared God, and out of that fear of God, he had a desire to want to do things for poor people. And so look what it says about him. He gave much alms to the people. Alms are charitable giving to the poor. He gave much alms to the poor out of his fear of the Lord. Now the important thing about this alms giving, see lots of people give to UNICEF. You know when the trick or treat for UNICEF, remember all that kind of stuff? Lots of people in the office give to United Way because their boss expects them to. And if they don't, they're going to be in trouble because the company has made a commitment to United Way, and so it is filtered down through the company to all ranks that they better give to United Way? Been there, done that. And all of you that live in big, work in big companies know exactly what I'm talking about. You better help United Way or you're in trouble. Your career is going nowhere if you're not going to give to United Way. That is not the almsgiving of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 was an occupying soldier, and instead of taking advantage of the populace, He's taking care of the populace. Right. Now try that on for size. Occupying soldiers in foreign lands take advantage of the people generally. Just look at World War II and the example of the Germans in Russia and the Russians in Germany. They did each other a great job on what they did to the populace and to the assets of both nations and especially to the women. Remember? When the soldiers came to John the Baptist, John the Baptist was baptizing out there in the Jordan River. Some soldiers came 
And they said, John, what do we need to do to show repentance toward God? John said, be content with your wages. I know you soldiers aren't paid anything. You only get a few bucks a month out of Rome. You're not paid very much, but be content with your wages and do violence to no man. Because the temptation of an occupying soldier in another country is to take assets and to take women from the populace. What's Cornelius doing? The opposite. Instead of taking advantage of the populace, he's taking care of the populace. He is giving much alms to the people. And do you know what? It says that that almsgiving came up before God as a sacrifice that was acceptable to him. Amen. What does that tell us? Holding your hand there, look at Proverbs 15. Can a man give a sacrifice that God accepts as a wicked man? No. Impossible. No. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. His almsgiving wasn't just your ordinary United Way stuff. Did I call it United Way or United Nations? United Way. It was, this was an ordinary United Way stuff. This was almsgiving that pleased God. This was the act of a righteous man. Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. When a wicked man, when a wicked man comes and brings a sacrifice to God, it's an abomination. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. That's Proverbs 15, 8. Look at chapter 21 in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21 and verse 4. And high look, that's a haughty and conceited person, and high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 21, 4. Even the plowing of the wicked is sin because a wicked man when he plows his field does not do it in faith. He doesn't do it in thanksgiving to God. He doesn't look down and see that earthworm down there and thank God for creating earthworms to ventilate his soil so that he can eat. And so a plowing for a wicked man is sin. There is no neutral activity in all of life. Either you are doing it to the glory of God with thanksgiving in Jesus' name, or you are doing it and adding to your sins. Plowing is such a neutral activity, you would think. But when it is not done in faith, it is displeasing to God. The point being that wicked men are sinning all the time, no matter what they do. Right. Look at verse 27 in the same chapter. Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? The Lord's drawing out the point here that every wicked man, when he brings a sacrifice or he does something noble in his opinion, it's an abomination and sin to the Lord. And it's especially that when he brings it with a malicious intent. What are all those verses about? I want to come back to Acts 10. What do we look at those verses for? Here's almsgiving that God accepted. Cornelius had to have been a righteous man. Cornelius had to have been a righteous man. Now we saw some verses back there in Proverbs that God didn't hear the prayer of the wicked. But notice it says in verse 4 here, the angel speaking to Cornelius in Acts 10, 4, thy prayers, thy prayers, and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. Psalm 34, 1 Peter chapter 3. God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. They can pray as long as they want. Do you know what the Bible says God does when the wicked pray? He laughs at them. Proverbs chapter 1, God laughs at the wicked when they pray. He laughed at everyone that was praying outside the ark. 
And it is, it is folly to think anything other than that. God had already given his grace to Noah and his family, and they were on the inside of the ark, and God shut the door so that no one else could get in. The wicked's prayer, the, the prayers of the wicked are never heard because they are totally unacceptable. Why would God listen to a child of the devil with his mind set on doing evil, praying to himself? He would never do that. When a man begins praying to God and it's accepted by God, it's because God has changed his heart. He's no longer wicked. He does, he has a new man within him. Right. When we look at Cornelius, who's praying? Cornelius' old man or his new man? You're going to say his old man? Do you want to say his old man was praying? The old man that is totally sold 100% to serve the devil and sin? No, it's his new man. If it's his new man, then what is he? He's born again. Old men don't give alms that God accepts. The old man doesn't pray in a way that God accepts. He has to have a new man that does those things. That new man comes by being born again. Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God was accepted and approved of what Cornelius was doing. Praise his glorious name. Cornelius was already born again, and he was serving God, though with very limited knowledge. All he knew is that he feared this great God. He calls him Lord. You know, when he sees the angel, he says, what is it, Lord? Just like Paul on the road to Damascus. Who art thou, Lord? Unfortunately, he knew who he was, but he just didn't know that Jesus Christ was that Lord yet. And neither did Cornelius. Cornelius knew there was a God in heaven and he feared him, but he didn't know that his son, Jesus Christ, had done all the things that he had for him. He had this new heart that was given to him by God and he was praying to God always. What was he praying to God always for? For the conversion of the Caesar? He was praying to God always for more understanding that he might know that God and know what he could do to please that God. Because that's what the angel said. Go get Peter. He will tell thee what thou oughtest to do. God changes a man's heart. Then what does that man need? Someone to tell him what God expects from him. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And out came Lazarus all bound up in grave clothes. And what were the servants supposed to do for Lazarus? What did Jesus say? Loose him. Let him go. That's all a minister does. We cut off all the grave clothes of false religion, false ideas, fear and superstition, man-made traditions, and the law of Moses to let a man be free in Christ Jesus. That is what preaching is for. Amen. The preacher can't give Lazarus life that's laying in the tomb four days dead. Jesus Christ has to do that. And the Lord Jesus Christ gave Cornelius life. But preachers came along to tell him what he ought to do. And the, the Jewish superstition about the law of Moses had passed away. The Roman superstition was all wrong. That Cornelius' guilt and grief for his sins had been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that he could rejoice in the freedom and liberty of the gospel that he had a Savior in heaven whose name was Jesus Christ who was coming soon and would take him home to glory. That is what a preacher's for. Right. But God has to change the hearts. We are totally dependent upon the Lord to change hearts. And then we, we address a born-again man. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just for a second. 1 Corinthians 1. Hold your hand at Acts 10 because we've got to come back. 
But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what I'm telling you is that the preaching of the gospel is only for people who are already saved. Right. I mean that in a certain sense of salvation, because there's a salvation that comes by hearing and believing the gospel. But let me show you, let me, you know, the, this is the message of the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. <sighs> Brethren, I have tried to help our brother sing in Malaysia all week because ministers are ganging up against him because they don't want to accept the word of God. Right. Look at what the verse says. The preaching of the God cross is to them that perish foolishness. If a man is perishing and is on his way to hell, the preaching of the gospel to any man like that is foolishness. No man has ever preached the gospel and helped anyone that was on their way to hell. Because it says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It doesn't say the preaching of the cross to them that perish is their way of everlasting life. It's foolishness to them. But look at the second half of the verse. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Instead of being foolishness, some men hear the gospel and say, Amen, that is the truth. If it's not for that, I have no hope. What causes a man to say it's the power of God when he hears the preaching of the cross? It's because he's already saved. Because God has already changed his heart. Otherwise, he would never perceive the preaching of the cross to be the power of God and the salvation. Notice to a person that's perishing, it's foolishness because he's perishing. He's got that corrupt nature that we've read about this morning. And when he hears preaching, it's just disgusting to him. He doesn't have any interest in it. No man would. And so the Lord comes along and saves us by saying live. And he says live. And listen, it could be between Sundays. You could be going to church because your parents made you go. And you're sitting there all the, all the way through church thinking about the games you're going to go home and watch on TV. NFL's playing today, second week of the season. Can't wait to get home. That's one Sunday. And then the next Sunday, between services, Jesus Christ may have said live to you. And the next Sunday you're sitting in there. Wow. Really? Is that, is that the way it is? Amen. Lord, have mercy on me. Right. What made the difference? And do you know what this whole world wants to preach? Because the devil is behind all lies. And the devil wants to make men their own saviors. The whole world thinks that that man saved himself by making a change in his life. No way. Amen. No one is going to get to heaven and thank themselves for getting there. Right. right. We are going to get to heaven and we're going to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for getting us there. Look at verse 24. You're in 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 24. But unto them which are called... See, verses 22 said that when you preach the gospel to a Jew, they don't like it because they want a miracle. Verse 23 says when you preach the gospel to Greeks, they don't like it because it's not intellectual enough. Verse 24 says, but unto them which are called, when they hear the gospel, whether they're Jews or Greeks, because they've been called, they've already been born again. When they are called and put into life by the Lord Jesus Christ, when they hear the preaching of the gospel, it to them is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's how they receive it, perceive it, and react to it. And all the difference is God made the difference. A Jew by himself, none of them would have ever believed it. 
a Greek by themselves, none of them ever would have believed it. But by the grace of God and his calling of some men to eternal life. That's why it says in Acts 13, 48, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed when Paul was preaching. That's what makes the difference. We then believe because God has given us a heart that understands it, wants it, and grasps and lays hold of it and says, I want that Savior that you're telling me about. And without the grace of God in our hearts, we would never, ever do that. The Bible makes that so plain. Back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is a devout man, one that fears God, gives alms to the people and prays to God always. In his almsgiving, his fear of the Lord, and his praying is accepted by God. An angel says to him, you need to send a Joppa for one named Peter. Verses 5 through 8 describe that angel telling Simon Peter what he needs to do, where Peter is lodging. Cornelius immediately grabs some of his faithful servants and says, you get over there to Joppa and get that man for me. And he called one of his devout, look at what kind of a soldier he called. It says in verse 7 that he called the devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. One of his bodyguards or close companions was also a devout man. God was having mercy on this whole household, wasn't he? There was quite a little assembly already formed when Peter got there. In verses 9 through 29, which I'm going to completely jump over because of time. It won't be jumped over in the outline. I don't like jumping over it, and you'll understand. Because of time, I'm going to jump over 9 through 29. That is Peter's experience of going up at about 12 o'clock, time for lunch, lunchtime. He goes up on the rooftop to pray, and while he's up there, he goes into a trance, and God gives him a vision where some unclean animals come down that Jews can't eat. And the Lord says, Peter, rise and eat. Look at look what I've got for lunch. And Peter said, no way. I've never touched anything like that, Peter. I mean, Lord, I'm not going to touch it now. Three times this vision happens to him. And then the sheet is drawn back up into heaven that had all those unclean animals in it. I can see pizza in there with pepperoni. Can you? I can see sausage, bacon. Animals that Jews couldn't eat was in that sheet. And Peter said, no, I will not. And God said, what I've cleansed, don't you call that common anymore. What I've cleansed, don't call common. And as soon as the sheep disappears into heaven, Peter is rattled into life because there's a knock down at the gate. And what kind of men are down there wanting Peter? Gentiles, common men, men the Jews did not have very much regard for. And Peter went with them because the spirit said, I've just given you a lesson. Here's the unclean things that you don't want to be with. Go with them. He explains this. If you read all three accounts, you'll grasp all of it very simply. There's nothing complicated about the conversion of Cornelius. So that gets us down through verse 29. Now we've got Peter's Peter's finally there at the household of Cornelius. Now, was it just Cornelius? Nope. Did he have kinsmen, near friends, and his household? Amen. What's the word used to describe the number? Few or many? Many. (laughs) Amen. Amen. You know, I had a man write me this week. He said, I've been reading your website. I've been reading your website, and how many is the Lord going to save? Is it just a few? Or will it be a lot? Can you help me? Oh, is that fun? To go to Revelation, describe the crowd in heaven. It's a multitude that no man can number. Right. That was a great pleasure to be able to explain to him. It is a great multitude. Out of every tribe, every tongue, 
every people and every nation, including Italy. But I want you to notice some words that are always overlooked. Out of. Right. God didn't have an obligation to save anyone. And if he was fair, he would not have saved anyone. God is not fair. God is gracious. Amen. And he chose to save his elect out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And it's so many that it's called a multitude that no man can number. I didn't mind answering that email. Cornelius in verse 30 said, he's explained to Peter why he's called for Peter. Four days ago, I was feasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Further confirmation that everything Cornelius had been doing was accepted in God's sight. Now, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that the face of God, the face of God is against them that do evil. But his eyes and his face are open unto the righteous. Psalm 34, 1 Peter 3, and other places. All these things were acceptable to God because they were coming from a righteous man. He just didn't know enough or very much to know how he ought to please God in New Testament worship. Right. In verse 32, Cornelius is still speaking to Peter, explaining to him what had happened. The angel told me to send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who, when he cometh, shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. That's the greatest attitude of a man can ever have coming into the worship of God. Immediately, as soon as God told me to do something, immediately I did it, and you've done a good job by getting here this quickly. Because I expected a quick turnaround, because if God said, I need you, I want you. Cornelius had a wonderful attitude. May God bless us to have the heart of Cornelius, to love the worship of God. Amen. And to be there and to have this attitude. Now are we all here. I've done my part, you've got yourself an audience. Now you do your part and tell us everything that God has commanded thee for us. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. What made a man like that? AA? Did he go to AA and somebody got up and prayed at the end of an AA session? And this made him want to get together with the Lord's people and say, Listen, Peter, you lay it on us right now. I want to know everything possible about serving God. Where does that change come from? But from within, by a man being born again. Verse 34. Here's Peter. He's never been in an assembly of Gentiles in his life. He's already explained that in some previous verses. He's had a vision on his housetop, and he's an apostle. He has the discernment of spirits. He knows exactly what condition Cornelius is in because he's an apostle. If you have forgotten that Peter had the gift of discernment of spirits, then you need to go back and read Acts chapter 8, where he discerned that Simon the sorcerer was not fully converted, right. if he was converted at all. Remember? Right. Mm -hmm. Simon Peter could look at a man and know, and here's the words that we have from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking on the first assembly of Gentiles, brethren. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, 
There was nothing vague about this, nothing uncertain. Right. This isn't just an idea of Peter's, of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Amen. Here is a Jew with a history of 2,000 years of, of God dealing only with the Jews for 2,000 years. Do you know what God said in Amos? Of all the families of the earth, I have only known you. People don't want to believe in election. It's all through the Bible. Right. Why, do you, why do you think God picked the smallest nation there was on earth and made them his personal people and used them to annihilate everyone else? Nobody wants to read the Bible. Right. We all deserve to be annihilated. Amen. That he would save anyone is grace. Amen. Instead of saying he's not fair for not saving everyone, I, you know, we just say he's gracious for saving anyone. Amen. Peter said, of a truth, I perceive that God no longer cares about Jews or Gentiles as any difference between them. I perceive that he's not a respecter of persons. He no longer has respect just for the Jewish nation and no respect for Gentiles. Because I'm perceiving something here that God has saved himself some Gentiles. Amen. He, say, he goes on to describe it by saying, but in every nation, including the nation of Italy, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. I perceive that this man and this group of people in front of me of a truth, they truly fear God and they are truly working righteousness, showing that they have been accepted with God. Amen. Believeth in Acts 10.35 is present tense verb. But in every nation, he that, but not believeth, but feareth. He that feareth is a present tense verb. And worketh righteousness is a present tense verb. Is accepted is a perfect tense verb, meaning an action done in the past and perfected and still true in the present. Yes. Is accepted. It's a passive voice verb, meaning something was done to him outside of himself by a higher power. And it was done before he did the fearing and the working righteousness. Peter makes that observation of a truth. I perceive that God no longer only has his people among the Jews because in every nation, men that fear him and work righteousness are accepted with him right along with us. Not will be accepted. You don't fear God to get accepted by God as far as being born again. God has to regenerate us in order for us to fear him and to work righteousness. How many verses would I need to take you to to prove that if a man is doing righteousness, working righteousness, it must be after he was born again? Or do you want to say that Cornelius was working righteousness in order to be born again? That's your alternative, and that's wrong. It's by grace only. So here we have Cornelius, and Peter makes that wonderful declaration about him in verse 35. And brethren, this verse is so important. A man that feareth God. Do you fear God today? What, is it, what does it mean to fear God? It means to be in awesome reverence of Him and devotion to Him and want to please Him in every way possible. That's what it means to fear God. Do you fear God today? You are accepted with Him. Are you working righteousness? Are you seeking to please God in your marriage, in, with your children? in your job, in this church, in your life, in your thoughts. Are you working righteousness? You are accepted with him. That's the testimony of scripture. 
It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you came from or how rich or poor your parents were. Do you fear God and work righteousness? You are accepted with him. And that's what, you know what counts? When you stand before God, it will not matter whether you accepted Christ or not. What is going to, what is going to matter before God is whether God has accepted you. Amen. This verse says that the key issue in Cornelius's life was, is accepted with God. God accepted Cornelius. Turn over just a few pages to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. It is amazing. It is discouraging. It is frustrating how men have turned the Bible upside down and not let it say what it says. There is not one verse in the entire Bible about accepting Jesus. Go look it up. There's a thing. There's a book called a concordance. You go to the A's and then you go to ACC and see if you can find the word accept sinners accepting Jesus because that isn't the issue. The issue is God accepting us through Jesus. Right. And that's what, that's what Peter said to Cornelius. He didn't come out and say, listen, you people of another nation, you need to accept Jesus. He came out and said, I perceive that God accepts people of other nations. And the evidence is they fear God and work righteousness. Amen. Look at this key passage about acceptance in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to start at verse 5. I want to read two verses. Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. It tells about our salvation in these words. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. How does anyone become a child of God? By adoption that results from God's predestination of that person. Verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. It is God's will that predestinates men to become his children through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 5 could not be plainer. Verse 6, why does he do it this way? To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We are acceptable to God because God predestinated and chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, as verses 3 and 4 tell us. The key here about the word acceptance is that God accepts us. When we get before God, it's going to be him accepting us, not us accepting him. Everyone there is going to want to accept heaven. But what's going to count is who did God accept? And God accepted those that were made acceptable in the beloved who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we were chosen and put in him and his perfect righteousness and his perfect death was put to our account so that we are acceptable in the sight of God. And Cornelius was acceptable in the sight of God. And Peter stood there. He'd never seen a group of Gentiles like this. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care about nationality anymore. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. God has accepted you, Cornelius, and your family. Now I want to tell you how he did it. And it goes on to say, in this, he, you know, Peter only gets started. He tells us in chapter 11, and when I began, the Holy Spirit fell on them. You know, Peter, Peter had a whole lot of things to tell Cornelius. And no wonder, the very, last, the very last sentence of Acts chapter 10 is Cornelius saying, Peter, can you stay with us for a while? Look at the last sentence. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. 
Right. Do you think Do you think Cornelius wanted to go to bed that night? Nope. After he was baptized, do you think he wanted to go to bed? Yeah. Or did he want to sit up all night, all the next day, and just milk Peter for everything that he could learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, about heaven, about confidence of salvation, about assurance, about how to worship him, about how to please him in your life? Of course he did. Right. Because the angel had said, Peter will tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Beginning at verse 36 and running down to verse 43, the apostle Peter begins a sermon about Jesus Christ. And it's very elementary. It just points out God sent the message of peace by Jesus Christ to one nation only. He is Lord of all. I love that little parentheses (laughs) in verse 36. Last Sunday's sermon, Jesus is King of Kings. Look at verse 36. There's a little thing stuck in parentheses that Peter just had to add. He is Lord of all. Did Cornelius have a Lord back in Rome? A Caesar. But here's Peter telling him, Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 36. Cornelius, I'm sure you've heard the general news about Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 37, it was published throughout all Judea, and it started after John the Baptist began baptizing. Verse 38, God obviously gave Jesus of Nazareth great power, who went around doing many miracles. Verse 39, we are eyewitnesses of all that took place, because we were with him. The Jews crucified him and hung him on a tree. Verse 40, God raised him from the dead after three days. Verse 41, not all the people have seen him alive, but we have. We are eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ate and drank with him. That was no apparition or spirit. We ate and drank with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's commanded us to tell the people that he's coming back to judge this earth. And to him, all the prophets testify that anyone that believes on him shall receive the remission of sins. You say, okay, there's the remission of sins. Were the sins of Cornelius remitted or were they not? They were, in a legal sense. Jesus Christ had already died and paid for his sins, but Cornelius didn't know anything about the forgiveness of sins yet. And by believing on Jesus Christ, he could realize to his own conscience and for his own heart the forgiveness of sins. Right. Do you, listen, what does 1 John 1, 9 mean to you? Are your sins forgiven? You know, just think about it. Are your sins forgiven? Yeah. Absolutely. Jesus paid for them on the cross, never to be brought into remembrance before God again. They are as far as the east is from the west. They are buried in the deepest sea. But what is 1 John 1, 9 for? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because we're rightly dividing the word of truth. And there is a legal forgiveness of sins that was accomplished and perfected and completed at the cross of Calvary. The book of Hebrews tells us one sacrifice was offered once for all and put away our sins legally. However, every day we have a fellowship problem with God and we confess our sins and we come into fellowship with him. And it's by confessing our sins that we receive forgiveness for our hearts and our minds. Right. See, God's legal dealings with Christ are totally separate from us. Cornelius didn't know anything about the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what Cornelius got to see when every thought religiously being in Judea? He watched the Jews killing animals. He did not know how sins were remitted. And so here comes Peter and tells him, lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one that has washed away all your sins. And if you'll confess your sins and believe on him, you can have the full remission of sins because Jesus 
price paid for them. And we do that every day of our lives when we confess our sins and trust the faithfulness and justice of God to forgive us over and over and over again, even though they were put away once for all when Jesus died on the cross. This is rightly dividing the word of truth, and if you don't make the division, you're going to end up in some horrible errors. Right. While Peter yet spake these words, he just got going with his sermon. The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Peter had a few friends with him that were Jews, and this crowd of Gentiles all of a sudden began speaking in tongues. Because God, it tells us over here in chapter no, it was, in, it was in chapter 15. It says, God that bears witness of the heart. God bore witness of the heart of Cornelius. Right. It was a good heart. So we gave him the Holy Ghost. Now, he gave him the Holy Ghost out of order to give Peter a little bit of encouragement. The order of the New Testament is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because that's the ordinary procedure. But God gave the Holy Ghost to Cornelius and all that company because Peter needed just one more little nudge that this was okay what he was about to do because he did get called on the carpet for it in Acts chapter 11. So all these Jews, all these Gentiles began speaking in tongues. Peter saw that they had the very same gift that he had got in the day of Pentecost. He says, get these people baptized. And so all these Gentiles were baptized and it tells us that Cornelius prayed Peter to tarry certain days. Cornelius wanted to hear a great deal more. If you were to go on and read the next 18 verses in chapter 11, Peter gives an account again of this whole event to the elders in Jerusalem to explain why he did and what he did with Gentiles. Brethren, we've all been saved the same way. Amen. Amen. All been saved the same way. If God had let us go our own way, we would have never turned to him, ever. There is none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth. He regenerated us by his own power, changed our hearts, delivered us from the wrath to come, washed away our sins by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ so that legally we were entirely saved. Vitally, we have a new man within us. And it's the new man that believes the gospel. Along comes the gospel preacher and tells the man who's been made alive on the inside and who has a new man This is what Jesus Christ has done for you. This is what you ought to do for him. And that is what the church is for. This is why we come together. To learn what we can do to please Jesus Christ more. To learn what he has done for us. And to love one another. And to help each other hold fast our profession of faith until Jesus Christ comes. The purpose for this church is to help us be ready for the Lord coming. And we trust that he's coming very soon. This is the lesson of Cornelius. When was Cornelius saved? Depends what phase of salvation the New Testament you were talking about. Paul said he was saved before the world began. Let's talk about Paul just for one moment. Paul said he was saved before the world began, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul said he was saved at the cross of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.15. Paul said he was saved by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. Paul said that he wasn't sure if he was going to be saved or not, but that if he and Timothy would be faithful, they could save themselves and their hearers. Strange. You mean a salvation Paul wasn't sure of, nor Timothy was sure of. That's right. That's why we preach the gospel. Practical phase of salvation. And then there was a salvation Paul knew he didn't have, but he was waiting for it. And that's the salvation we stand before God 
and he owns us as his children before the universe. And the Bible deals with all five of those phases. And when you see the word saved in the Bible, you better rightly divide the word of truth or you're being so simple with the word of God, you're going to end up in confusion because the commandment is rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. And it's not that hard to divide it if we look at the context and see what is being said. We're able to look at Cornelius and know that God gave him a new heart before we even got to Acts 10. Then we're able to see that he needed to hear from Peter what he ought to do. He didn't know how to have peace for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't know how to please Jesus Christ. Peter was able to tell him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. If you would like to see more information on this subject, it will certainly be available in the next couple of days. Yeah.